0: Hello and welcome to the Celtic History Podcast, Episode 7, The Giant's Castle, Part 1. Hello, Happy New Year, Merry Christmas and whatever else, it's been a while. I hope you've missed me, I've certainly missed all of you. It's good to be back. Today we kick off the final leg of Season 1 with an in-depth look at the towering fortress that represented the pinnacle of the Halstatt period. Today I have a guest host, or rather a guest perspective. I'd like to introduce Servus Talius Priscus, the ambitious heir of a wealthy trading family. We're going to switch between Priscus's journey into the Halstatt zone and my own commentary. And I will warn you, I do have a flavour for the dramatic, and I do like to fill in some colour. But this serves only to humanise our ancestors and to try and immerse us in the period. I do not, uh, I'm not intentionally trying to mislead, or for that matter, misinform. Now, without further ado, we travel to the 9th century BCE, somewhere in the mountains of what we call in the modern day, Austria. service Tullius Priscus was weary. Though they had only been riding since dusk and the dawn had not yet broken, he'd been travelling through the narrow mountain passes and deep pine slopes of the Alps for some weeks now. His strange foreign guides insist their great giant's castle lies just beyond the horizon, in their flicking, less refined tongue than the fast-cutting highs and lows of the language of the Racena. Though he understood it well enough, he also had a translator from the Venite, whom also provided them with magnificent steeds which glowed like the first snows of the lush green landscape of the Alpine spring. Though Priscus has gone through great personal effort to make this journey, the council of his home city of Arretium all agreed it was the only way to ensure preferential treatment over their rivals in the neighbouring cities of Falarthi and Curtin, not to mention their colonies beyond the Pope. In fact, as they were leaving the city of Mantua, a delegation from the Folarte was just arriving, and they had to make pace. Priscus, however, knew what he was doing. His father had made his wealth from trading the valued goods of the north with the commodities and culture of the south. Though others chose to barter and trade with the silky-smooth Venetian master traders or the blunt, head-spinning Greeps of the Pythacousai colony, his father worked best with the honest, though British, chiefs to the north. And through the wealth of this business, his son, Priscus, was able to invest in the grubby business of politics and gain a seat amongst the great families of his city-state. Though less refined than their other trading partners to the south, his father always insisted on their transparent nature and their charmingly simplistic view of the world. A view, his father said, was worth a respect of its own. The harsh yell of the guide broke his chain of thought. Rasenna! Unharteslein! deslein! Cersloan Sure enough, as his plodding steed crested the horizon to reveal the magnificent Danube River. A truly colossal rend in the scene before him, like a winding road defying the landscape to lead us to our destination. As the pale grey eyes of Priscus followed the dark waters of his vision, was suddenly overwhelmed by the magnificent white glow of the painted outer fortifications. As they grew steadily closer, he could make out the regular jut of towers, reinforced with strong timber, and above all, the magnificent sight of a watchful citadel whose inner wall was masterfully crafted into the landscape of the cliff perched over that magnificent Danube River. Priscus pondered at the wisdom of the men who saw the opportunity this position presented. Conveniently situated near the source of the Danube River and the resource-rich mountains to the west, as well being situated on the cross-section of the amber trade to the north, None of the resources could go anywhere, whether land or river, without paying homage to the rightful masters of this giant's castle. In the plains of the river below, Priscus could see the steady dotting of fields and livestock making good use of the fertile soil provided by the rich soil of the mountain landscape and the waters of the Danube. The farmers could be well-equipped to feed the veritable metropolis of the city that watches over them, especially with the abundance of iron for tools provided by the nearby mines, of which their masters has control, as well as the salt provided, which could preserve the meat of the slaughtered livestock during the cold winters of the north. Truly, this was a cradle of civilizations. After many miles of open ground, the party of Priscus grew closer, and he could hear audible gasps from his comrades, servants and slaves, at the sheer size of what could only be described as a city north of the Alps. If a city this size was amongst the city-states of Tuscany, Vallarthy, and the other Etruscans, there would be no doubt in calling the Honeberg a polis. Priscus silently thanked Ferberus, the god of prosperity, that the might of both civilizations was focused on trade and prosperity rather than warfare. Below the great dike and walls that surrounded the city, Priscus could also see great Tumulus burial mounds, which his father told him were for the most elite families of the city and contained all manner of magnificent treasures. His father also told him these families were always keen for Etruscan goods to bury in these great mounds. <laughs> This seemed highly wasteful and impractical to him, but he dare not say such a thing to a local, lest he leave without his head. He did also ponder whether perhaps some of the goods his father traded ended up in these magnificent burial mounds. As the entourage approached the outer wall, the magnificently carved timber gates seated about a large white gatehouse. The gatehouse was a more naturalistic imitation of the gatehouses of their own city-states, but the gates themselves were wide open, again proving to Priscus that the chiefs were far more interested in trade than fearful of war, despite the elaborate fortifications. However, the vigilant warriors perched like watchful crows in regular intervals across the ramparts, sturdy spears in hand wrapped in beautiful individualized plaid cloaks and their already impressive height magnified by their pointed conical helms. A further two warriors stood either side of the gate and a third man clearly more distinguished by his large conical bronze helm with an eagle anima perched atop, with two large white feathers protruding. The man spread his arms in a warm embrace to reveal much more intricate and magnificent clothing, as well as a beautiful culnivir golden brooch that clasped together his intricate plaid cloak. Welcome, most noble traders! He boomed in broken Etruscan. You must have the swiftness and cunning of Lou to arrive so soon after the breaking of the first snows, he mused. Switching to his own language, he remarked to the guide, trying to get a foot ahead of the competition, I see, eh? Priscus, sensing his opportunities, I will always awake with the dawn if it means I have the opportunity to revel with such an honorable and great people. Priscus wielded his tongue like Larin wielded his spear, with the practised precision of a veteran. Though he had served his city on the battlefield before, Priscus would always argue that diplomacy was the deadlier game, and of course, can yield the greater rewards. "'My father always spoke warmly of the great hospitality of your chiefs, and for this I have travelled many miles in the hope that I can receive your city's warm embrace.' Rather more if you have brought your own prosperity to share with our own. Having studied the halls of both diplomacy and trade, Priscus took the hint and signalled to his aid to pass the bag of Etruscan silver to the man. But he in turn signalled to give it to the warrior to his left. Giving the warrior an inquisitive glance, once the man had nodded in turn, the great blonde behemoth embraces Priscus. Welcome, my friend. I am Caracas, keeper of walls and servant to Argetarix, prince of salt and master of the Hornburg. Our party was led in a long snake winding its way along the main wagon track up the hill. Our party, surrounded by warriors wearing torques and trinkets, clutching long ash spears with iron heads, towering a good foot taller than Priscus and his fellow Italians. Caraticus was clearly an individual of some personal renown, as he led our column through the bustling packed track. The sea of traders, farmers and even livestock parted before the master of the gates. Ahead, there was a great, steep, An empty path with a sort of no-man's-land either side to the left and right of the track, with rectangular houses with same brilliant white of the walls. And atop the many thatched roofs, smoke billowed from the man-made holes as far as the eye could see. Priscus had always thought the charm of these barbarous people came from their apparent humble background, but this, this was practically a metropolis. Finally, we niched another mighty gatehouse, large enough for two wagons to go abreast. Upon it, carved a cross-legged guardian with silver-lined antlers sprouting from his helmeted skull. Kerneros, the mysterious antlered patron god of the prince who ruled the city. The choice of Kerneros showed the astuteness of the prince's line, as it could be commented on many things his family skill at the hunt perhaps, the virility of their bloodline. It could be a symbol of prosperity or to call on the god to protect their honoured dead. Priscus felt the judging gaze of the god in the gate, like the god was considering if Priscus' party were worthy to cross the threshold to be allowed to deal with his honoured sons. Caracas turned and without his gleaming smile, Bring your offerings and essential servants, the rest must wait here. Caracas' previous worn demeanour had vanished, replaced with a stern jaw and an imposing figure. Caracas himself was clearly deemed worthy by the god. A simple curt nod to the soldiers manning the gate saw the great oak portal open before our eyes. Frozen for a moment, it took a backward glance from Caracas to pring Priscus back to life as he entered the spanning courtyard to follow. Hello everyone. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the uh, look into Priscus's journey into the Alps. Quite a change from Northern Italy for him. The Hornburg, the giant's castle, this monumental fortress, has transformed our modern understanding of Celtic civilization. Before this, it was thought that there were no cities north of the Alps. The first mention was from Caesar's Gallic Commentaries in the first century BCE, but the Honeberg's original citadel was built in the seventh century BCE and was a full-blown city-state by the fifth century, a full 500 years before Caesar's account of the Oppidum of Bibaract, Genoa, and Cinnabum. Shout out to Eric at Biberact, who sent me some fascinating stuff from that site. Uh, I'm definitely going to uh, give him a mention when we get to that point uh, in the narrative in the Laten period. In the Horniburg, we reach a massive departure in the scope and the density of the settlements we've seen in Europe so far on the podcast. The Horniburg may have started as just another hill fort, but its strategic position, coupled with several key changes in the structure of society and wealth available led to a scale and sophistication we've yet to see so far. So what were those changes? Well, if we draw on our last two episodes, we can learn everything we need to know about how Hallstatt went from a barely recognized divergence to the dominant culture in Central Europe. We know from our discussions of the origins of the Hallstatt culture that there were many sources of wealth available. In the immediate vicinity, these being salt, metals and prosperous agriculture to support it all. We also know that Hallstatt culture was mainly centered around strategic rivers to facilitate trade. Several developments made in the wealth of these comparatively humble Ernfield chieftains into the elaborately buried Hallstatt princes we see in our example at Hochdorf. In one, the introduction of iron tools in the 8th century BC greatly improved agricultural yield. And as we've discussed before, societies with healthy food surpluses can achieve all sorts of feats, like fielding armies, bring up agricultural labour to become artisans or merchants, greatly increasing the wealth and material culture in society. Two, the development of Mediterranean trade networks we described in our last episode, especially the Etruscan city-states of northern Italy. The opening of this trade route south opened both a market for the raw materials that are so rich in the Alps and in response a demand for luxury goods from the newly enriched nobility of the Hallstatt chieftains. This explains the elaborate Etruscan and Greek prestige goods on Hockdorf prince's grave that his family were so keen to boast of. Now we can begin to make sense of why instead of boasting of battle prowess like his ancestors may have chosen to do, he decided to boast of his far-reaching trade connections through his luxury goods. This appears to be what was most valued by the Hallstatt chiefdoms, which is quite a departure from the head-hunting painted war-mad barbarians we've come to know through our classical sources and popular media. To protect these commodities we can imagine the local wealthy families would be incentivized to work together to protect these communities and so are able to pool their resources to create an increasingly elaborate fortifications to protect their interests. This may take the form of an oligarchy or perhaps a powerful war leader that was able to make these families submit to his rule either by force or by offering protection in exchange for fealty. Again, much like feudal lords. Personally, I have a hard time deciding which it is. When trade and prosperity increase in a society, it does tend to lead to more cooperation rather than more violence. And if, in fact, the High King, if you like, was chosen based on his ability to kick people around, you would think there would be more emphasis on warrior culture rather than trade progress in the princely graves we have found. Sadly, we will never know. But irregardless, whomever built the Horniburg, they were very powerful indeed. This wealth and specialisation are what led to the development of a distinct Hallstatt or, if you like, Celtic culture through the eyes of our ambitious Etruscan politician. We will observe in the Grand Halls of the Hallstatt Chiefs the beginning of a distinctive cultural tradition and regions—sorry, religions that will go on to influence so many people and create the Celtic world as we know it. The layers of settlement we are beginning to see from Tullius are well represented in the archaeological evidence. And this is where low-level traders, farmers and merchants would have haggled over goods and services. The Halstack Celts would be keen to get their hands on foreign goods. But what kind of finished goods did the Celts themselves produce? For analysis of material culture, the place archaeologists often look is pottery. Pottery, having various functions in everyday society as well as having blank spaces to allow the artist or artisan to express their own views or the views of the commissioner. Unfortunately, this is where the Hallstatt Celts again shoot themselves in the foot as far as helping us understand them is concerned while the classical civilizations of the Mediterranean will use these as platforms to tell us stories about myths gods or famous battles the Celts display less literal but still a beautiful form of expression though plain and dark in color Hallstatt pottery was superbly finished and highly polished displaying angular designs usually s-shaped handles it was often made in what is known as tripartid, coronated pottery which is three separate pieces with straight sides that when assembled create an angular form. Later examples are often painted much like the Greek and Roman pottery that is more well known. Another reason why Celtic pottery is hard to distinguish is due to something the Celts appear to have in common with the Romans. The Celts were more than happy to adopt something they liked and often emulate other cultures. We saw this at Hochdorf with the Celt attempting to copy the lion atop the Etruscan amphora. And we'll see it again in the closing stages of the Latin period with the Romano-Celtic art and culture. Many of these commodities of the late Halstatt period are influenced or even emulating their Etruscan and later Greek neighbours. For this episode, and probably the next episode, we'll be sticking to the top of society, which is of course where we find the most distinctive, lavish culture, as well as what information we can glean about politics, war and treasure. But don't worry, the little guy will get his own episode, perhaps even two. One of the most distinctive aspects of all Celts is their affinity for warfare and their fame at metallurgy, which is demonstrated most prominently in their swordcraft. One finds in Indo-European and even Western culture up into the modern age, there's a sort of mysticism around the secrets of metalworking and in particular magic around swords. The Western canon is full of accounts of magic swords, Excalibur, Gram, Gramdring, Valyrian steel, and of course iconic images of the Iron Throne made from the melted down blades of the enemies of the king. Metal itself conveys power in many respects. The steel of swords, the gold of scepters, crowns and rings are held by those who hold the most power from ancient to medieval times. Again I like to talk briefly about how prestige conveys political power and legitimacy. I have to say I really like how Robin Pearson in the history of Byzantium explains this issue in the context of how God conveyed legitimacy on the Byzantine ruler. In the case of tribal societies such as the very well known Norse societies of the early medieval period or Vikings if you like Legitimacy was conveyed on a leader by how much wealth he could provide. And this wealth, most importantly, must come from the top down. higher up in society, the more physical, material, prestige goods you have on your person. And of course, even though it is important for that leader to distribute the most, it is also equally important that the man at the top has the most bling. Anyway... Metallurgy. A staple of the Celts often mentioned on the podcast, but the height of Hallstatt period is where we really see this reputation take off. We find the origins of this view in bronze smithing, which was a specialised role in an ancient society. Few held the knowledge necessary to make the metal cocktail that was bronze. It typically required over 80% copper and just over 10% tin, and included such toxic ingredients as arsenic which is highly toxic and can cause crippling illness and pallid, pale flesh. This is the origin of the crippled smith trope seen in many Western mythologies, such as the Greek Hephaestus, always the butt of everyone's joke on Mount Olympus. Not only that, but the bronze could not be worked hot. For swords, the metal would be poured into a mould and the edges hammered and filed meticulously before reaching a level of sharpness that can seldom be believed if not seen. I have heard of accounts from archaeologists that some bronze swords they found were still razor sharp after 2,000 years. For comparison, iron swords that are barely 500 years old rust to the point that only a stained and rusted outline of the oxidized blade can be seen as evidence that there was once a sword there. The association of the Celts with metallurgy really starts with the emergence of iron. Their Arnfield and later predecessors were no strangers to metallurgy, and we see mentioned that the early copper and bronze working was highly prevalent even from the Yamnaya onwards. But what gave the Hallstatt people a leg up was the emergence of iron and their geographical proximity to it. Though, as we mentioned in the early Hallstatt period, the The salt mining and agricultural society of the early Hallstatt Celts was not distinct. It is difficult to be real pioneers of metalworking when you have to trade for these relatively scarce resources. Iron, however, was right on their doorstep. Iron's relative availability in the Alpine and Upper Danube region was a great boon to Hallstatt society. And it's interesting to note that the start of Hallstatt dominance coincides with the arrival of ironsmithing in the region. The culinary designs we have already seen on Celtic metalwork are a staple of Hallstatt craft and can be found in such places as the Hochdorf Grave. What changed for the Hallstatt Celts was that instead of simply being another recipient of bronze for craft, they they found their mountain holds an ideal position to access the ready availability of iron ore. If you ask me, this is one of the reasons the Celts became famous for metallurgy. The Celts only became a distinct people during the Iron Age. Prior to this, they were one of many Indo-European peoples, and the cradle of their civilization had the abundant materials and trade available to create beautiful and intricate metal work in other materials such as gold, bronze, and iron. So perhaps this doesn't answer the question of why the Honeberg came to be necessary. Well, the common sense answer would be that the accumulation of such wealth requires protection. Of course, due to the nature of the society, this would mean the masters of such wealth would be able to command many warriors. But rather than risk their vast wealth to the predations of our well-documented raid and trade tribal warfare, the Honeberg seems a good solution. It is so impressive, however, that many archaeologists and historians believe that rather than a single high king, if you will, commanding all this wealth, that the princes pooled their considerable resources for the common goal of protecting their wealth. Due to the similarities found in the lime washed white walls with similar trade forts built by the Phoenicians around the same time, some archaeologists even posit that they may have hired a Phoenician architect. But to be fair, classicists are always trying to claim so-called barbarian peoples. were only trying to imitate the more sophisticated Mediterraneans. Sadly, we will never know who ruled over this impressive city, nor who built it. But what we can know is that there are few armies in this part of the world that would command enough men to overcome such a formidable fortification. As Priscus pre- described... There was first a dike and an outer sturdy timber wall with a foundation of stones, which was packed with mud brick and finished with a brilliant white. The colour may have been to help with weather resistance, but it certainly has a psychological effect too. The defender would first come upon a manned gatehouse, which if breach only left the intruders suddenly victims as the defenders hurl missiles on the helpless intruders. Assuming this can be overcome, there is only our narrow track, not to mention the cliff and river already limiting the approach to the presumably well-defended citadel, Gatehouse. And then you have to start the whole thing over again, with well-manned wolves, six-foot bearded veteran warriors atop ramparts, not to mention the fact that during this time war machines in this part of the world weren't really a thing. I mean, battering rams will probably just be a tree trunk, as far as we know. While I'm sure that the later classical armies of the Med, such as the Romans, could have overcome such obstacles, I have a hard time imagining the armies of the 6th century BC overcoming such obstacles, and those who could were thousands of miles away. The Assyrians, of course, and the later Persians. I'm going to post many visual resources for this episode as I feel words can only do so much to convey the size and scope as what is truly a giant castle. So I hope we're starting to get a bit of a picture of why the Celts were able to maintain such power and wealth during this time. However, we're really running out of time and I wanted to do the Hallstatt period real justice because it is the absolute bedrock of the rest of the series. So next time we're going to pick up with some of the ideas we already explored, like for example the basic houses of the everyday Hallstatt Celt or perhaps some of the gods that are seen across Celtic society and the difficulty of pinning down a consistent pantheon. And we're going to follow Priscus's journey through the inner citadel all the way to the Chieftain's Hall to get a real good look at how hierarchical, complex, and cultured these people were. I'd love some questions and feedback on this episode. Uh, I This is a new style. Uh, we've been kind of working towards it for a while. But I look forward to hearing what you all think of it. Okay, stay tuned for After the Music uh, for some updates and uh, pointers towards social media, etc. And I'll see you next time on the Celtic History Podcast. got you I just want to say thank you to all of you we have absolutely blown th- past 10,000 downloads uh I think we're at 1200 as of this recording on the 3rd of February um and I have to say it always explodes again after I post an episode so god knows where we're going to be um after I have uh <laughs> Posted this. Um, I have to apologize for such a long absence, um, but I have repeatedly said that this podcast is meant to be irregular. Uh, And at the moment I'm making absolutely no money off of it uh, and I obviously have to prioritise uh, my family and primary job. Um, I also uh, struggle quite a lot seasonally, as I know many of you do out there, particularly living in one of the rainy, dull Celtic nations, not getting enough vitamin D. Um, But I'm sure many of you out there know all about that. Um, I also um, want to say thank you to uh, the, the great US of A um, because your downloads are uh, all across the nation. Uh, literally all across the nation. Uh, I can't even entirely pin down uh, a single city. Um, but uh, I want to say another thank you specifically to the great city... Uh, of Melbourne, Australia, uh, and Sydney, Australia, who are currently battling uh, for the most downloads uh, in in a single city. Uh, third place is Dublin, um, and I just want to say thank you all. Uh, and I'm hoping to get a friendly competition going between Sydney and Melbourne. Who's the best? Who's going to get the most downloads? Who's got the most Celtic heritage? Ooh, let's see. So uh, you know, take the bait if you want, guys, because uh, you know, uh, only benefits myself. Um but uh, another you know mention to Canada, Germany, Ireland, and the UK. Thank you so much, all those listeners. Uh, and I've had some listeners from some amazing and random places that I never uh, imagined would have an interest in Celtic history, So thank you all so much. Um the second uh, part of this is that I just want to give you some information on uh, the social media. Uh, I have made very poor use of social media thus far. I am not very organized, um, unfortunately, uh, and I may uh, seek some help from my wonderful wife uh, trying to be a bit more consistent with posts, etc. But I can tell you for a fact that the best place to find me if you're looking for updates and posts is... Uh, And even to personally message me, I would say it's probably Instagram. Uh, It seems to be the best platform um, in terms of responsiveness uh, and feedback. Um, I have my Instagram, my Facebook linked, uh, and the same posts go on both sites. And yet, next to no one uh, sees my posts on Facebook. But there seems to be plenty of people seeing it uh, on Instagram um, the other thing was uh, I'm trying to gauge interest in uh, live streams uh, for questions, comments, uh, etc. Uh, uh, that would be, uh, I, I'd really love to do that because I am more actually uh, of a speaker than a writer, <laughs> as you can imagine. Uh, and sometimes uh, having that open platform that's less rigid for questions helps us answer some of the more nuanced questions. Things so if you could please uh, respond to me on social media and show your interest because the number of actual downloads um, versus the number of people who actually interact in social media is there's a stark difference. I mean, there's probably only a hundred people interested on Instagram versus ten thousand people downloading. So I just ask if if you want more. Um uh, I have lots of plans and lots of things that I could do. Um I was considering doing a tour of hill forts uh, in my area. There's a hell of a lot of them. <laughs> um I live near the Trimontium site, which is a famous Roman site, but prior to that it was also a Celtic hill fort. Um there's ones down at Ancrum. Uh, one of the famous uh, bronze ha- uh, age finds the uh, uh famous bronze spearhead was found fairly near to my location. Um and I'm looking to probably do that all through the youtube channel but i am not going to do any of that until i know that the time and money is going to be well invested so social media engagement is really going to help that one out guys um also uh the patreon is officially launched i've had it up for a number of months now but i wouldn't consider it officially launched i've not been promoting it I've not really done anything with it but this episode and all future episodes will be going up a week early on that Patreon so if you're listening to this um on the 3rd or 4th it'll probably be the 4th of February uh, then that that's because you got it on Patreon if you're listening to it a week after well you could have got it earlier um but I, i'm looking to engage with the with a small community because i know you're right there because the number of downloads is actually blowing my mind <laughs> so thank you all very very much um yeah so i'll see all you guys next time and uh thank you again for listening and have a good 2023 okay bye now